Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Thank you for seeing me, Mr. Bloom Garden. I know you're the biggest producer on Broadway. Seventh biggest. I know, but the other six don't like my idea, and one of them tried to have me arrested for it. You can't arrest somebody for an idea, unless it's an idea like Jared Kushner should be poor. Press on, Miss Chatterbox. Pitch your idea. Okay, a revival of Porgy and Bess. How is that an idea? But with Hugh Jackman as Porgy and Kristen Chenoweth as Bess. And Nathan Lane is sporting life. That's outrageous. Who tried to have you arrested? Can I co-sign the warrant? I know. It's crazy. Hugh Jackman is like 6'2", and Kristen Chenoweth is like 4'11". It's never been done this way, with the height difference. Also, Nathan Lane is too old for sporting life, but he's so funny. Do you want to know my favorite Nathan Lane performance? No. Get out. That was a great movie. I love Allison Williams. But what if they had Zac Efron in the male lead? Wouldn't he have been great? Kid... There's something here that you repeatedly failed to grasp. There are certain roles that white people cannot play. Nobody wants to see a Caucasian Porgy and Bess. What are you going to call it? Springtime for Gershwin? That's where you're wrong, Mr. Bloomgarden. Everything has to be different now that Trump is president. White people with problems are the new black people with problems. This is why I favor gun control. I definitely would have shot one or the other of us at this point. One last idea. It ain't necessarily so, but it's about fake news. Sit down, Mr. Bloomgarden. We've already had enough body slamming for one week. Maybe the nose can figure this out. And now he proposed a two-state solution for Katy Perry and Tay-Tay, Colin McEnroe. Right. We're going to cover all of that. All of that today. Uh, thanks very much to Karen Wolf and Sir Ray Hardman, the great actress Sir Ray Hardman. I don't know if Sir Ray Hardman has ever appeared in the lead role of Heartbreak House, which is the first thing that we're going to talk about today. Uh, but I can tell you that many great actors have, including Sir John Gielgud, um, Sir Rex Harrison, Sir Rex Tillerson. Uh, <laughs> they've all done it. Uh, so joining us here in the studio to talk about a whole bunch of things, theatrical and non-theatrical, is uh, Chris Arnott, uh, who writes about theater for the Hartford Current. Used to be the. Th- Are you still the theater jerk in any context, or is that uh, Hartford Current's got me, my theater stuff exclusively? Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, New Haven Theater Jerk was the blog. You used to be I, the New I Haven Theater Jerk. Yeah. Did you hold the trademark anyway? I mean, you know, it's like somebody else. Like grabs it. You know why I got, came up with that title? I don't like being quoted. So I thought if I had the silliest <laughs> title, I wouldn't get it on posters. All right. Now you're a Hartford's theater jerk. Yeah, now you're just Indeed. A, Indeed. Oh, you're a blurb whore like yes. everybody else. All right. <laughs> Denisha Dugan, a producing associate at TheaterWorks, and Jacques Lamar, a playwright and senior project manager at Buzz Engine. So we kind of broke one of our rules uh, on the nose today, which is we typically just assemble a panel and then we decide what we want to talk about. But we knew we were kind of going to go theater a little bit today, at least in the first segment. The second segment, we were going to talk about the Katy Perry uh, Taylor Swift feud, which obviously has got America tremendously on edge, um, and <laughs> also, also because Jacques wants to talk about it. So, um, so that'll be there. But we've got three different theater topics to begin with. All of us saw Heartbreak House at uh, Hartford Stage Company this week. Also, later in the show, uh, we're going to talk about sort of prickly. Pi- I can't even say it. Prickly playwrights, alive <laughs> and dead. Uh, so Edward Albee is dead, but in fact, uh, from the grave, he still wants to make sure that people like, uh, well, like that person in the intro, don't uh, introduce race in the wrong way into his shows. What he think he, he would have thought would be the wrong way, anyway. And David Mamet doesn't even want there to be little talkback 
chatterbox sessions, the kinds of things that happen after the curtain call, uh, and which they do, by the way, at Heartbreak House at Hartford State. So that's where we're going to begin. Heartbreak House is by George Bernard Shaw, uh, written uh, somewhere around 1919, first staged in 1920. Um, it's... Um, it's a difficult way to describe, but it is sort of uh, George Bernard Shaw dipping his ladle into the Chekhov bucket a little bit. It's uh, a bunch of eccentric people at a country house having problems which initially seem kind of funny and get less and less funny as the night uh, go, goes along. Uh, it's a, a play about love and money and capitalism and to a certain degree about ultimately war as well. So how, just – well, you're a critic. How I just – Made that up. I don't well, know. Show was, was a, show is a critic, yeah. and so and he really dug Ibsen and Chekhov, mm-hmm. and he wanted to do one. And he, he also was Shaw, so he was he was good at this stuff anyhow. But Heartbreak House is his. He wrote sixty-page introductions to most of his plays. He wrote long <laughs> introductions with chapters. As sixty pages is not an exaggeration. So he, we know this. He, he he aspired to be Chekhov, and he he carefully went over Chekhov plays and wanted to do one. So he he's, all, he's also, I have to say, he's a prickly play, playwright. He's, one of, he's with Albie and Mamet. He uh, was a curmudgeon, didn't want uh, Pygmalion to be turned into My Fair Lady. Mm. Um, he, Everybody he, knew that was going to be a commercial disaster anyway. Right? He thought it was. <laughs> he, he was like, I'll let him do it because we won't hear about it again. They'll still be doing Pygmalion in 50 years. But, That'll uh, teach Rex Harrison. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Heartbreak House. And But maybe the first – we should probably just get this thing out of the way, Tanisha. So uh, one of the in, – in communicating with us even about Heartbreak House, mm-hmm. Harvard Stage has said, look, we think this is sort of the right play for the for this uh, political moment. And, you know, without – I don't know. I mean it just isn't uh, – we're going we're gonna to sort of not spoil this, but we sort of have to tell you something about <laughs> this. So there's sort of a visual gag in, in Heartbreak mm-hmm. House. It's about Donald Trump. Uh, it's um, it's indisputably and unmistakably about Donald Trump. There's no gray area. There's no bubble. It's just clearly a Donald Trump thing. And it sits out there on stage for quite a while before you even can get used to it. Um, so I, I guess maybe that's my first question about this is like uh, would this play – if this play is right for the political moment, would we have just understood that absent this visual cue? I, I love that that is the frame that – with which I can jump off of because that's actually been a lot of the conversation I've been having around the piece. Mm. One, I have to say it's actually helpful to think of it as a checkoff piece because I think that actually opens you up to understanding, for lack of a better term, the chewiness of the language because it is in a lot of ways rich white people sitting and talking about life. Um, it does feel very Chekhovian in that and so that totally lands it for me in a, in a, a place in which to sort of dissect and digest. I actually really appreciated the Trump uh, gag Mm -hmm. because I think without it, it feels too far away. Mm -hmm. Um, I think with it being set in in its time, with it being done in British accents, uh, it just doesn't – I think it's just hard to put it together that it really is of this political – that it could be of this political climate, and it just sharpens that focus when you see him. Um, but I think people fall in two different camps on it. I think definitely there's there's the world where it goes that is really distracting, and actually that pulled me out of the show, and now I'm I'm not going to go for the ride. I'm hoping that the experience that I had is is more of the majority, which is that oh, okay, now now I can start to sort of see this through what 
I'm experiencing today and not see it as World War One. This was, you know, how many years? I can't do math. <laughs> how many years ago that was? Almost well, a long time ago. A hundred years ago since the start of World War One. That's an easy one to remember. So you have the floor. Or do you want me to uh, ask you a question? No, no, uh, just so they know, you're pointing at me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I I was of two minds about it. I thought it was, um, uh, I mean, it's it's a genuinely hilarious moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the play is in when large I saw it, part it got of applause. comedy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, ve- it's indisputably funny. Um, the, the thing um, about it hitting the nail so squarely on the head is it takes away the audience's ability to make that connection itself. And, I mean, there's even a word, you know, a point where he uses the word Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that the character, um, you know, it, it, I guess the question is, is obviating it helping or taking away? Um, and, and I'm a bit of, of two minds on it, to be honest, um, because clearly the audience had a palpable reaction to it. Um, but I think it's one of those things where having the audience achieve that awareness on their own might have made it, um, uh, I don't know, maybe a little more special. I, I guess I'm having a hard I, time verbalizing that. I, I get you, and I've been sort of talking it through about, you know, theater is both a visual art and a work of literature. And I think the Trump piece is like an artist painting in black and white and then throwing in fuchsia. And so it is meant mm-hmm. to make you look at it in a way that is a little disruptive and disturbing. And, you know, theater is a collaborative art, so it's not just the playwright who gets to sort of decide how an audience experiences a play. And I just thought, oh, okay, throw in yeah. some fuchsia. I'm, I'm into the fuchsia color. Well, <laughs> you know? well Shaw's oh, not sure. there to stop them. Yeah. But, I, yes, <laughs> which we'll, yeah. we'll talk about. Yeah, I think we'll talk about that. <laughs> Although, Chris, a couple of things about that. First of all, um, building a little bit on what Tanisha said, the other thing about theater is theater is also a place where the audience is – present and in a position to communicate with the people on stage. Mm-hmm. So on different I, – I happen to see this show on a Tuesday night. Tuesday night in Hartford is – well, on that night, it was I thought a pretty tough audience. They didn't – the first act is very funny. The second act is not. But the people did not laugh during the first act at all. At all. Huh. I'm thinking, these are funny jokes. Come on. Come on, you, come on. You can laugh. It's Tuesday night in Hartford. You can still laugh. But there were sort of – a rumble, you know, that went through the audience uh, over the Trump <laughs> visual gag. And and that's another thing about theater, right, is night after night, it's a little different. And the audience gets to decide a little bit what kind of night yeah, it's well, going to be. Yeah, well, went over gangbusters on opening night. But I, I think what bugs me about the, the really strident choices are the – you. If there were five heartbreak houses going on around that you could go see, you'd get a sense of the play, and then you'd go like, "Oh, they're doing the Trump heartbreak house, and somebody else is doing the, you know, Mr. Magoo heartbreak house." But what what happens when? I mean, there hasn't been a production. That's, by the way, the captain just keeps bumping into things. Yeah. That's not a good production. I've seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, there hasn't been a production of Heartbreak House in Connecticut, one of the major regionals, for thirty years. Mm-hmm. So. It's like if you know the play, oh, interesting pick. But if you've never seen the play, you might not get that, for instance, the, the father figure that's played by um, Keith Redeen, um, That's He's the comedy character. He's, right. um, and he, was, uh, he underplays because there's this big buffoon over there. 
Right. I, there's, and I just want to stay with you for a second, Chris. One thing that you, you're in touch with a lot of people in theater, and they're all telling you the same thing, which is they're just making different choices right now. They feel... Yeah, go ahead. Every, mm-hmm. Just about every interview, and I'm not kidding. Like, like I could count the ones who haven't said this on one hand, but everybody this year since November has said, well, we planned this play before the election, but it's going to seem very different now. Hmm. And it's everything. I mean, comedies, musicals, Jacobean tragedy. I mean, just everything, you know, Greek drama. And, and Darko Trejanek said it to me about this play, but he also said it about Comedy of Errors because he thought there's a lot of bullying in that play, and he thought bullying would play differently in this world. And um, there is truth to that. Um, he didn't put Trump in the Comedy of Errors, could have perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I this is not the first play where I've seen somebody doing Trump in a play. The uh, UConn just did the Shrek musical, and they had the Lord or whatever. Oh, he was Trump, and he, and he came in on a horse, and he said, Whoa, Kellyanne. <laughs> <laughs> um, that got that laugh, too. You know, it's like audiences <laughs> dig it. I mean, audiences get it. Of course, you're going to roar. You, you got know? a double laugh from us, yeah. actually. <laughs> well, so there's, I don't know. I struggled with this a little bit, and I'm going to make uh, Tanisha really happy. I'm going to make you really happy right now. I'm going to make a somewhat invidious comparison uh, between the two theaters in Hartford that favors theater works. And here's why. <laughs> See, that did, I've already made, just even saying I'm going to do it makes her happy. So one thing that I sort of, I, I, this is sort of almost a stray thing, although I'll be very interested to hear how Jacques reacts to this too. So theater works, um, theater works and other theaters have a thing where, you know, they have to say something to get the beginning to tell your, turn your cell phones out and stuff like that. So theater works has this thing where a human being walks out in front of you. Sometimes it's Rob Ruggiero too, the director there, but sometimes it's somebody else. I don't know. Maybe it's Tanisha some nights. I, I don't know. But there's, mostly Josh. Yeah, it's mostly Josh, <laughs> the, the house manager. But there's something about that, you know, where like this human being comes out and makes this connection with you. Hi, hey, you're at the theater stuff like that. And I wouldn't even mind, like we're going to be talking about talkbacks later. I, I almost feel like the talkback should come then. <laughs> or at least somebody, should, like if somebody had said to me, because I'm an idiot, if somebody said, this is Shaw being as Chekhovian as yes. he can, that would have really helped me a lot. I would have understood a lot more. But I think also just in general, audiences feel welcomed and free to laugh at stuff and everything. You know, people can do this in different ways. I mean, Michael Wilson was kind of uh, famous during his time at Harper Stage, just kind of bounding out onto stage, you know, and, and like waving and greeting everybody. And you, you know, and I, the Harper Stage Company is one of the theaters, they're certainly not alone, that use this taped thing. They don't change the taped thing to maybe make a joke or do it in an accent that fits the it's just the same damn taped thing that they had for the James Lucene show last time is the taped thing this time. And I actually do think there's some way in which, with a, particularly with a show like this, it's going to be a little bit difficult. Maybe the way you greet people and get them into the theater is important. I think you have a, a really great point. And, and one of the things that I love about Hartford Stage is that they have Elizabeth Williamson and that she is the dramaturg there and she does such a marvelous and beautiful job sort of setting up the plays for us. And I actually think that is the opportunity where the Chekhovian part needed to be introduced um, because you do spend that time, whether it's stylistically a live person or not telling you where the bathrooms are and how to exit in case of a fire, the information about how to receive the play before you see it I do think needs to be expressed. And figuring out what that is like from show to show is difficult, I would say, because sometimes you want to just talk about Shaw and, you know, 1917 and, you know, his his process. 
And sometimes you need to think about your audience and go, okay, that's all really important academic stuff, but what they really need to know is that he's looking at this as a Chekhov play so that they can understand that they're going to see a lot of people sitting and talking and wondering where Moscow is, <laughs> you know, wondering where's the when's the money coming in so that they can process that. And maybe without stealing the, the gag of Trump, really firmly place it for us that why Darko made the choice for Heartbreak House in this particular climate was X. Um, because I think that'll help. I think that could help to feed it a little bit too. I'm pointing at Jacques again. Well, the, um, uh, there are some, you know, Harper Sage has, has always done a terrific job with program notes. Mm -hmm. um, and they also have news, a newsletter, stage notes that go out in advance. And sometimes, you know, that's, where the dramaturgy can be found and accessed easily through their website. I thought Darko's um, letter in the program about why he chose uh, and returned to Heartbreak House and what the play means to him, um, you know, was very powerful. And it made me pay extra attention to the final line of, of the play because he, he goes back to it several times within his letter. Um, you know, I there's that part of me that says let the audience just experience the play, and so which I know again was kind of leaking into a conversation that we're about to have, yes. but um, so there is that part of me that's like oh let's prepare the audience, and then there's that part of me that's like let's not take away the the freshness of the experience uh, by by doing too much prep work. And so, you know, I think the the Donald Trump sight gag um, works because we haven't been necessarily prepared for it. I, I wish I could have been. I knew that it was going to happen. I'd heard about it. Mm -hmm. I wish I had been at the first performance where that would have really landed as a surprise before there was a chance for us to go on the radio and ruin it for everybody. Uh, <laughs> but, well, we still haven't quite ruined it, I don't think. Yeah. But Chris – I mean, the Donald Trump part of the show, not to keep beating on it, but I mean, it's um, – I mean, what's interesting about it too is that if you get to the second act of the show, assuming that I understood the second act of the show, which was Shaw and me, it's always a jump ball. But um, it, one of the things that I'm sensing in the second act of the show is that there's a little bit more of a blurring of the lines of the people that you meet in the first act. The first act, yeah. the people are a little bit of stock characters, you know, as you hear a little bit more of their inner lives, including the, the, the Trump surrogate in the show. You know, it's a little bit more complicated. He's more willing to acknowledge some of his faults. It turns out there are things about him that we didn't know. And he does have something of an inner, inner life. And some of the people who seem slightly more noble or at least ingenuous uh, in the first act turn out to have maybe a little bit more uh, of a flinty or cynical side to them in, in the second act. So, you know, it's not just a cheap Trump joke because ultimately no, in the no, second act we're invited exactly. to consider this person as a, something of a human being yeah. too. And you could argue that it's I – mean, I mean Shaw is not Chekhov and Shaw's plays are plenty lively. I just want to let the listening audience know. Yeah. You know, stuff gets thrown. There's all kinds of stuff going in a wastebasket. There's a, an explosion or two. There's uh, – I mean Shaw writes plays where there's another one where a plane crashes into a greenhouse. Uh, you know, he shoots off cannons in his plays. So the idea of a, an explosive joke like that is, you know, fits. Yeah. Fits. It's a lively show. Um, what was your question? Well, I just, I'm just, I'm sort of, I, I'm thinking it's not ultimately just a Trump joke, or at least not just a no. blunt no, instrument. And, Trump and joke. Shaw's a moralist. I mean, Shaw, you know, he puts, sets up his characters with these contradictions, and they have to deal with, uh, you know, heritage and and culture and their 
coming to odds with things that they've, you know, ways they've grown up. And so it, it fits there too. But it's broad. It's a, you know, it's a, it's just a big, broad joke. You could argue either way. It yeah. works, Interesting that works you, as a joke or it's too big. That you make the point that it's broad because I think that's also something that I was trying to piece together. Um, the broadness of the, sh- of the show and the broadness of the intention of the play. And so I think a l- knowing that that's, that's Shaw's aesthetic is actually helpful as well. All right, so we are going to shift gears here. So at the end of Heartbreak House, like at the end of a lot of plays, uh, even on a slow Tuesday night in Hartford, although the theater was quite full. So there's this thing that happens, Jacques. It happens at a lot of different uh, theaters, which is that um, they, they announce that there's going to be some kind of little talkback session. 85 to 95 percent of the audience <laughs> clears out. Not goes, at gets my in their theater. Cars. Well, maybe not at your theater, but, but you know, most of the people like head for their cars. But at least Tuesday, it is Tuesday night at Hartford. People want to go home. I didn't stay. I'm not going to listen to this. But a lot of some people really do want to engage, and I guess they get to sleep late the next day. And so there's a talkback session. Uh, Jonathan McNichol, our producer of this show, went to the, stayed for the talkback at Heartbreak House the same night that I was there. And p- some people really like these kinds of things. One person who doesn't really like these things is the playwright. David Mamet, one of the most acclaimed modern uh, American playwrights. And so in suburban Detroit at the famous Out Visible Theater Company in suburban Allen Park, Michigan, uh, they were closing their season with Oleana, uh, the David Mamet show. Uh, They were wanting to have these little talkback sessions. And they were notified that if they proceeded to have talkback sessions or anything like it were to happen within two hours after the performance, for two hours after the performance, this is a letter from David Mamet's people, uh, they would be fined $25,000, $25,000 for the audacity to sit around talking to, uh, uh, to I guess, the cast and director or whatever, whoever was going to be at the talkback se- session. So I know you don't like talkback. Well, which, you say why P- you don't I like talkback. Like which, P.S., by the way, me. $25,000 is probably more than that production could ever right. imagine <laughs> that realizing. Was, that, was the, that was the production budget for that, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Tanisha, you were jumping in. I do. I said I feel like this is the bone that Colin threw me because we spent the first part talking about Heartbreak House because the, the talkbacks are my thing. Mm-hmm. I love a talkback, and I also did race a mammoth play at TheaterWorks, so I have this double connection to the, why to don't the we idea. Do, why don't we do we should, uh, we should not, do to be, not to be sexist, even though Oleana is very much about sexism, uh, but why don't we let the lady go first? All right. I just oh, wanted to quickly say, because your intonation was a little confusing, you were appeared in the play Race, which is a David Mamet play. Which is, yes, correct. Because you said, I, I also did Race a Mamet play, which sounded like you and the Mamet play got in opposite <laughs> lanes and then went as fast as you That's actually probably, probably <laughs> what Tanisha happened. Won. <laughs> Tanisha won that one. That's actually a Richard Foreman play, where like a human being and a play race, race each other. But um, Legitimately, I think that's what happened, because Race is a pop- problematic play and could actually... Um, be useful to have a talk back after and it's actually not surprising and something that me and one of the other actors talked to, actually the black actor talked about is that oh well it's not surprising that he doesn't want to talk about this play when it's done because he has a very strong opinion about things that he knows very, he has very little personal connection to it would be nice to be able to talk as a human and not a character about the things that he brought up but I think talkbacks are actually you know essential in a lot of ways to help people sort of deepen their experience of a play. And if they're done well and right, um, 
which to me means curated and focused on topics that are actually central to the piece and not just sort of a, hey, how did you learn your lines kind of conversation. Um, they can elevate a play out of just the visual into the literature, elevate it out of uh, the experience of that night and allow you to take it outside to the streets. Um, theater to me is, you know, democratic. It was it, it was hot when democracy was being birthed and its purpose was to put a whole bunch of people of different you know, socioeconomic backgrounds into a space to mull over topics of the world and of life. What better way to complement that kind of experience than by asking those people to talk to each other in real life? So I'm like a staunch supporter, as <laughs> most of you know, of those conversations, whether but, they're in the theater or, or but the bigger the, the bigger issue is about is about the playwright's intent or ability to shut that conversation down. Right. Exactly. Because I mean, the thing is, I personally, for the most part, hate talkbacks. Um, but uh, and I'm one of those people that will flee with intent uh, <laughs> to get out of the theater as fast as possible before I, the actors start coming back out so they can't see me running. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and I have various reasons for that. I, I actually like scholarly talks. With, on plays, which are different than talkbacks, which oftentimes devolve into, how do you remember all those words? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, sometimes the a, questions aren't good. Will, yeah. you, will you do a talkback with one of your own plays? If the, um, the, if the company wants you to do if it, if the theater asks, yeah. And when we did Born Fat Down at at um, Seven, Seven Angels, Angels yeah. we started doing talkbacks not because we thought the intent was unclear, but because the subject of the play was there mm -hmm. and because the play dealt on issues surrounding weight uh, you know and and your body image which um, like an issue like race uh, people can talk about for you know hours and so they were very powerful talkbacks which was different because it was about the issue rather than about the play or performance some plays, quite frankly, don't need talkbacks. You know, I don't need to have a talkback after Mamma Mia. And so, you know, what's to discuss? Maybe but, that's what you need it most. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, or, but Chris, why did I come here? But Chris, I think also that this raises the question, who comes to plays these days, you know? And, and so you go to all, more plays than pr practically anybody. So there's, there's some people who are like just regular theater go goers who are very smart and probably don't need a talk back or want to talk back. Then there's some other people who are really smart and want that experience. And then there are some people who are retirees. There's a lot of retirees, a lot of gray hair and these things who maybe enjoy chewing something over. I mean, people right. who are there are there for a lot of different reasons. I've been at really cool talk. I mean, like I, those people. I, I flee talkbacks usually as well. I, I have not been to, I, I got to check out the TheaterWorks talkbacks because my experience of most talkbacks is the, the first person says, I thought you were all wonderful and there's another round of applause. <laughs> and then the second person says, I thought there needed to be more blue yeah. or more drums. And then the third person said, you know that couch you have up there? I have a mm -hmm. couch just like that in my living room. And that, you know, like when it's scholarly, I've also been to talkbacks where guys got up and said, you know, that nuclear physicist that you're playing, 
I knew him. I worked mm-hmm. with him over at Yale. Yeah. You know, and those are amazing moments, and you're happy to be there then. But most of the time, people are just unwinding. Right. I mean, they're, they're just, they true. saw the show, Although the Steve, and they're like hanging the, out a little longer. The Steve Martin show at Longwar, which we had the only other play I think we've done a, a nose about, there was like, the talkback was really stupid and anodyne, except there was one guy there who was probably a philosophy professor at Yale or something, who just, you know, who brought up all kinds of stuff that I just hadn't gotten. Um so I don't know. I just I guess, I but but that, we're sort I mean, of we're we're dodging the real question, which is does, does David Mamet? I mean, obviously, has the right to shut this down and to be a jerk. Well, this that's I mean to to go he to may, where where Jacques is living. I think what you're taking out is that the audience is a char- is a character yeah. in the creation and the collaboration of a theater experience. And so by saying to your production, I don't want the audience to have a talk back talk back aside you are saying in a little bit of a way i want to control how my how the audience experiences it and the truth of the matter is is that a playwright can't really do that whether whether a theater hosts a formal talk back or not what the audience takes away and the conversations they have posted cannot be controlled. But what the you want to control isn't asking is them for talk backs. You can take away our talk backs, but the you o- can't take away our audience, freedom. The audience isn't, isn't driving talk. the talk back. No. The talk back is being driven by the theater. The theater thinks it's and, a good idea. Yeah, and theater existed for 2,000 years before talk backs. Right. And you don't so know that. Euripides you, could have st- and hung around. No, yeah, but uh, but the thing but is, they I mean, were events. So I don't think. So I can, I'll take the talk, <laughs> the formalized talkback thing off the table. But the idea yeah. that these conversations didn't happen in the arena post the performance, like a while people were sitting at a picnic, I think is is not. Genuine. I'd like to think that they did say, you know, Mr. Euripides is going to hang around after the show. <laughs> you guys want to talk to him? All right, so just we got to wrap this up so we can do like two minutes about Albie. But I'm, Chris, I'm going to give you the last word on this because it really is the question isn't is David Mamet a jerk? Because we know David Mamet is a jerk. He's an yeah. epic jerk on multiple fronts. Is he a jerk about this or is he well within his rights as a creator? He, he questions a lot of theater traditions. He doesn't like subscription audiences either. And he had a theater where he, they wouldn't allow subscription audiences. He thought the experience should be fresh. You shouldn't be, be subscribing and coming, you know, uh, alternate Tuesdays and, and seeing whatever was there. He wanted you to come see the shows he wanted to see. Nothing wrong with that. I don't know his exact argument, um, but maybe he's just had bad experiences at talkbacks. I'm in the, I'm in the, the, the debate racket. I mean, what I do is start a conversation about a play. So and I don't I don't see myself as like the final word. I see myself as a beginning word, and so I like those discussions. I like them to be smart, and I don't I like them to be kind of less random than they often are in those auditoriums. All right, do we even have time to do this Albie thing, Jonathan? Do we have enough time to do this Albie thing? Can we can we squeeze it in? We'll do it. Okay, we're going to be allowed two minutes for this. So very quickly, theater I don't producer, know that you can do it in two minutes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, let's let's just at least tell people what's going on here. All right. Um, which is that uh, in uh, Portland, Oregon, they're doing a production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, they wanted to cr- to cast a black actor, Damien Geeter, uh, in the supporting role of Nick. That's the man and the young uh, couple that uh, comes to this uh, – the older couple's house. Uh, and it turns out that the Edward Albee estate has some control over that, that Edward Albee didn't like that kind of thing or didn't like that kind of thing while he was alive. And they also got kind of a cease and desist. You can't do that. Because uh, Nick is supposed to be a Caucasian character whose blonde hair and blue eyes are remarked on frequently in the play, even alluding to Nick's likeness as that of an Aryan of Nazi racial ideology. doesn't really explain why George Siegel played that role in the movie, but... Um, <laughs> 
so I don't know. So we're back to this whole thing. Like, okay, so I go with Donald Trump. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I'm going to go go around this way. We'll start with Jacques. We'll end with I guess Chris will get the last word again. But uh, well, you know, I I worked. Uh, I don't want to be like I worked with Edward Albee. I worked on <laughs> Albee plays in which he was <laughs> present and involved. Uh, and the thing is, were the iguanas allowed to be black? Yeah, he, I mean, he was a stickler about everything, mm-hmm. about everything. And, you know, there's the whole theater's a collaborative art and everyone's bringing stuff to the table and what have you. And there is honoring the playwright's vision for their work. And even though, you know, I think there are people who are like, oh, it's racist. It's not racist. And people are saying, oh, you know, he's dead now, so loosen up. And it's like he has an estate. That's why you put an estate together to protect your intellectual property. And so... I think, you know, allow, you know, uh, that there are certain things that you just have to say, I'm going to honor the playwright's wishes. Although, I, let me just, I, I, so Tanisha, like I saw uh, Nichols and May do this show in New Haven, and, and so James mm-hmm. Naughton, who also does not look like an Aryan, was Nick. You know, James Naughton, who's from West Hartford, is mm-hmm. kind of black Irish, basically. So I think it's all crap, actually. And you could probably do a kind of J.C. Watt obnoxious Republican black guy, you mm-hmm. know, and just with clothing and stuff, send all those signals and actually have kind of an interesting tension. Uh, so we're back to the question. I mean, I, there's no question that that could be an interesting artistic choice, right? Agreed. I think that there, it is absolutely an interesting artistic choice. I think once a play is published, um, I think a playwright, if whatever visions they have for the play, a la Shaw's 60 pages pre uh, Heartbreak House should be put into the script and stage directions explicitly. Um, and then I think, like, you know, songs that you can now sing without having to pay rights on, they, 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 the playwright has to release some of that to the artistic team because it is not a novel. It is not something that you just take and read and hold and the way that you wrote it is all that it is. It is then put in the hands of somebody else um, and depending on the theater company and how large the production is, many something else's to uh, make an artistic, a holistic artistic expression. So I think... It's hard for playwrights to understand that, but it's almost like being a parent where you go, I can't fully control what this kid will be. <laughs> All right, Chris Arnott, 45 seconds. I'm in so much trouble right now. <laughs> <laughs> Edward Albee, um, th- he nixed a, a, an all-gay production decades ago of Virginia Woolf. Now, that you can argue. They, they can see there's something weird um, that you want to talk about. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but he's, he's within his rights. But the uh, being black on stage... Today is not what it is not the same thing as being black on stage when Albie wrote that play. There's much more colorblind casting now, and there's and it's not even noticed sometimes a, a racial difference. In fact, it's encouraged. Multicultural plays happen all the time. You feel funny. You feel extremely white if you if you wanted to go that way and cast it traditionally. All right, we're going to break there. We've got to save some time for this incredibly difficult. Oh, so think about the intro. A long time ago, when you hear this music.
I don't need to tell all you public radio listeners. That's of course that's Swish Swish, the new Katy Perry song. Uh, it is interpreted not uh, just checking the dial. <laughs> not just by everybody uh, listening as uh, interpreted as a diss against uh, Taylor Swift, but it's interpreted that way pretty much by Katy Perry. Here she is on the Late Late Show with James Corden. This is what happened. This is it's about backing dancers, right? Yeah, it's about backing dancers. I love that it's it's about so crazy. <laughs> okay, so there is like three backing dancers that went on tour with her tour, right? Yeah. And they asked me before they went on tour, yeah, uh, if they could go, and I was like, yeah, of course. I'm not on a record cycle and yeah. get the work, and she's yeah. great and all Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But I will be on a record cycle probably in about a year. Mm-hmm. So be sure to put a 30-day contingency in your contract. Right. So you can get out if you want to join me when yeah. I say I'm going back on. Sure. So that year came up, right? Yeah. And I texted all of them because I'm very close with them. And I said, yeah. look, just FYI, I'm about to start. I want to put the word out there. And they said, okay, well, we're going to go and talk to management about it. And they did, and they got fired. And I tried to talk to her about it, and she, she wouldn't speak to oh, me. Oh, you tried to talk to her about it? You, you, did, the, you did the phone call? I do the right thing. So you did Any the phone call and it was it a shutdown. it feels like a fumble. It was a full shutdown and then she writes a song about me and I'm like, okay, cool, cool, cool. That's how you want to do with it? Karma. But I but, thought, but, but, go on. What I want to say is that like, I'm ready for that BS to be done. Now, mm. there so, is the law of cause and effect. You do something and there's going to be a reaction. Mm-hmm. And trust me, daddy, there's going to be a reaction. I find it weird when you call me daddy. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, so she doesn't sound like she's ready for that BS to be done. But so so that's a good, once again to review. That's Jacques Lamar, Jacques, not Jacques Lamar. That's Katy Perry <laughs> talking about how she got into a feud with Taylor Swift. This is an object of some fascination for Jacques Lamar. So you get us started here. Why is this? It actually ties in nicely with Mamet and Albie. It's like <laughs> there is going to be a reaction. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we will find you and shut you down and write a diss track. Oh my God. Uh, and. So I I I'm kind of you know fascinated because is this the sort of the Joan Crawford Betty Davis feud? Yeah, of but the thing is, but you never so you, right those now. those things weren't public love feuds. It. That's mm-hmm. that's what's been so interesting about the rise of the diss track and whatnot is of taking your your private beef. I mean, this was a business problem that turned into a personal issue that has turned into and we know from the Godfather that, top... that we know from the Godfather that's not a good thing right? yeah and then you know and so uh, you know for those who aren't aware Taylor Swift's diss track was bad blood which be hearing it at the end of the segment. was a number one <laughs> it was a number one song so like she set the bar high but she didn't necessarily she's very coy about who she writes her her diss tracks her, well all yeah. of her tracks right, yeah. are, are about somebody famous I love how pop music is sort of stealing from hip-hop though right. <laughs> like that this is like the thing now well let me just press the race button a little bit harder about that look I, I don't I don't would there be a comparable level of interest if logic and Kendrick Lamar weren't getting along or or for that matter, if Ed Sheeran and Bruno Marx were having a big Marza. feud uh, about, like, you know, who's more good-natured or something. Well, um, I'd say I'll, I'll press the race issue and actually keep it gender-specific. Yeah, well, that's the uh, gender thing, too. Remy Ma and Nicki Minaj had a beef uh, this summer. <laughs> You're welcome! <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and that was that was business uh, as well. I mean, Remy went to jail, and while Remy was in jail, Nikki sort of said, "Oh, I'm t- I'm taking your spot as the next, you know, rap queen." Uh, and 
Oh, Nikki already had that throne. Let's just be clear. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> but I I'll think, be releasing a diss track about this later. But I think it's been such a part of hip hop for so since since the dawn of it mm-hmm. that it's just and I, I say this with a lower, super lowercase a, because I'm not saying this, but it's a little bit of an appropriation of that that genre's thing um, that they do. And again, super lowercase a, because I don't think that it's actually. No, well, but I mean, the thing is, they. That way. But like this Taylor time. Swift <laughs> had Kendrick Lamar rap on her remix of Bad Blood, mm-hmm. and Nicki Minaj, who had her own beef with Taylor Swift, uh, is guesting on. on um, uh, Katy Perry's song, so it's it's you know, all yeah cheddar. So it's I, all chatter. I guess the question also is, I mean, I, Chris, I don't know if you have the same reaction. I wonder how much of this is genuine ire and how much of it is just really good box office. I mean, this this stuff for some reason. I'm not really even. I, well, it doesn't work for me. I mean, I'm a punk rock guy, so I this is nothing. I mean, you know, <laughs> right, exactly. And, exactly. These people and, still I mean, have all their they'd teeth. They fist feist. Yeah, uh, I feel like I. Yeah, I, I I don't care. I mean, you know, for a week this was like rumored feud. What kind of feud is that? Right. I mean, you know, you have to you have to go on a talk show and admit it was a feud. And so I guess I feel like I'm I'm going to be backpack kid and stand, stand in the corner and just wave my arms. Like, <laughs> That's a Katy Perry reference. You might not all, all have gotten it. All right. So, okay, Jacques, you get the last word because we're going to go to a break here. Is there anything else to be said about this? Uh, I really like the song. So, hey. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that we talked about straight up pop music. All right. Yeah. So there we go. We're, uh, this had to be fast. It was fast. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations. bitter splits of this kind, it's often the backup dancers who suffer the most. In the final settlement, I think the judge should put the interests of left shark first. It's hard when a shark has to change schools. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. If you want to hang around after the show, Amanda Fish will lead a talkback session with Tanisha, Chris, and the audience. Jacques is refusing to participate. The part of Bill Curry was played by Richard Burton. Coming up on Monday, a show about uninvited guests which sounds like a topic we do, but is actually a special program by something called ReSound. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back on schedule. I don't know how we did this, uh, but we did it. So we're going to make some recommendations. Uh, let's start with you, Chris. Chris Thanks. Arna. Um, so I like I need another reason to uh, dig into my Saint collection, but Roger Moore died this week. Mm-hmm. And we are in – I'm a lifelong fan of The Saint. It's yeah. a character created by Leslie Charteris. And we're in a renaissance of The Saint already because a, a major box set came out last year from Shout Factory, which had – Dozens, dozens of episodes of the show that have never been on video in the U.S. Mm. Plus, Ooh. all sixty books came out as eBooks, and a whole bunch of them came out as audiobooks. So I've been rolling in this stuff for a couple of years now, and I encourage all others to do so. Let's just take a few more seconds to say. So the Saint is, um, a, 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 it's a hard thing to describe. It's a little bit of James Bond and a little bit of yeah, Sherlock it's a, Holmes a, a and a little bit of precursor of James Bond yeah, and, and, and a little bit um, of sort of maybe Lord Peter Whimsey too. There's sort of this sense of this, you know, he's this, cool. He doesn't he doesn't uh, use guns much, right? And 
he doesn't sleep around the way Bond does. When I was a kid and I read all those Bond books back to back, I never got at that age why that was a good thing in your job to be that kind of distracted. And The Saint is much more... <laughs> is, is, it doesn't happen as a theater critic? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what that's like, you know. Um, all right, so that's great. I, I'm, I'm also a fan of The Saint, I guess, as you could probably, probably tell. So I didn't realize there was somebody as hardcore in the audience. Impromptu singing, I love it. All right, Tanisha, what do you got? I'm endorsing Sanctuary Kitchen in New Haven. They're a program of City Feed. What they do is they host cooking demonstrations and cooking classes and supper clubs all led by uh, resettled refugees pretty awesome uh, group of volunteers that do it head to sanctuarykitchen.org if you want to find out about events that they're doing um, but just really great stuff they're doing down there all right now we're actually getting like, we're you had, now you have to do a long endorsement oh good I've actually got three <laughs> oh, good I'll take one of yours <laughs> all right uh, one I want to uh, uh, um, endorse the keepers on Netflix I'm watching it and I'm completely obsessed and it is in 20 seconds what is it it's a documentary that is ostensibly about um, about these people searching for the identity of a killer of this nun who uh, was murdered in 1969, uh, and she was a teacher in a Catholic school. Mm. But it unfolds and unfolds and unfolds, and the net gets wider and wider. I heard there's sort of an Institute of Living shout-out. Uh, there is an Institute of Living shout-out. I, I had a little Hartford pride, even though it was all about shuffling uh, pedophile priests out of their diocese into into Hartford. So um, <laughs> big ups to Hartford. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to uh, endorse something I haven't tried yet, uh, and that's because they're they're um, they're doing some test uh, test dinners this weekend for by invite only. But Chango Rosa, uh, yes. which is going to be opening in the old hot tomato space, Jamie yes. McDonald. Uh, Bear uh, from Bear's um, Barbecue and Blind Pig Pizza has um, his new uh, kind of fusion Mexican uh, restaurant that's going to be opening uh, in that huge space. So it's so nice to have something in there. And I'm going to hop on that endorsement and say you could do like a double date. Go to Chango and then come see Fade. Duh. At Fade at Theater. Where where is Fade playing? (laughs) At Theater Works. Anyway. And I do want to endorse – uh, Heartbreak House, um, which is well worth your time and and is a, a deeply complex play and funny, and uh, and and so just amidst all this conversation, the set is mm-hmm. stunning. The costumes mm-hmm. are crazy beautiful, and uh, it's well worth your time. Do I have time for one more? Yeah, you can, yeah. You can okay, all right. Um, and uh, just this is more of a shill than a, an endorsement, but the Connecticut uh, LGBT Film Festival is coming up. It's their 30th anniversary. Uh, they show films mainly at Cine Studio starting on June 2nd, uh, but uh, and it will run through the 10th, but they do have other uh, locations, including Real Artways and Front Street and... Um, and the Wadsworth, and I watched one of the movies yesterday, um, the film adaptation of the musical Hello Again uh, by Michael John LaCusa, and it's fantastic. 
All right, so um, I'm going to do. Uh, see if I can use my time effectively. Uh, actually, I'm going to do. I always thought I would maybe do this endorsement someday. It's a good day to do it. So um, this is so not culture, uh, but um, people's cars break down and they don't know where to take them. Uh, I'm going to give away one of my life secrets, which is the South Whitney Garage uh, in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. If you live in the Hartford area, uh, Claude is the proprietor there. Uh, I have never had my car fixed by Claude and felt felt like I was being billed wrongly or anything like that. It's just he's not an upcharger or anything like that. So, um, And I, I was never going to tell anybody this because I don't want to have to wait to get in. But you know, I have a Subaru. It never breaks down anymore. So um, <laughs> South Whitney Garage in Hartford. All right. Now, this is the more cultural one. I am so obnoxiously a fan of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is the um, – uh, the vehicle by Tina Fey and her writing partner um, that like the other person in my house can barely stand to be in the room with me when I'm watching it. I, and she tends to just watch me laughing like an idiot as opposed to actually watching this thing. But I really do think Tina Fey is as brilliant a comedy writer as we have uh, in the land. She's mean and she's politically incorrect and she's a whole bunch of other things that you could object to. But boy, uh, can she write. And this obviously is uh, the ideal cast, Ellie Kemper, uh, and uh, like a whole bunch of other just tremendous. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, yes, uh, him and Jane Krakauer and Carol Kane this year in particular is just knocking me out as Lillian Kaustupper. I have to say Michael Carlson because he'd not be pleased with me if I didn't. Right. Titus's boyfriend. Right. Oh, he is great. This, <laughs> this is And this season in particular I think is really funny. Yeah. They've introduced as one of the they've got four or five subplots running right now uh, but one of them involves the Snyder family, the people who own the Washington Redskins uh, and it's it's very funny uh, what they've actually done with that idea. I don't know how they're not being sued for this, but uh, somehow or other they're not being sued for this. But I would start at the beginning. It's on Netflix. That's the only place you're going to get it uh, is on Netflix. But start at the beginning so you understand Kimmy's uh, semi-tragic story, which is an unlikely comic premise, uh, and then go from there. And, of course, you always have the pleasure of John Hamm uh, as the uh, cult leader, the sadistic cult leader. There's all kinds of terrific cameos in the series. So, yeah, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So thanks so much to Chris Arnott, uh, who writes about theater for the Hartford Current, Denisha Dugan from Theater Works, and Jacques Lamar, playwright and somebody important at something called Buzz Engine. We will have some shows for you next week. We'll be live a week from today. We'll be live from the Berkshire International Film Festival in Great Barrington. All the berry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, burning. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't let Donald Trump distract you with his shoving of the prime minister of Montenegro and his failed hand-holding attempts with Melania and his not knowing that Israel's in the Middle East and his yearbook shallow note at the Holocaust Memorial and his posing gleefully with ruthless tyrants. Katy Perry and Taylor Swift made their drama up and they're laughing all the way to the bank.